0: Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. And this is Robbie Martin. Thanks for joining us, everybody.
1: Thanks for tuning in, you guys. We're gonna jump right in here to talk about Michael Moore's new film. I have not seen it yet, Robbie. Obviously, we all saw Fahrenheit 9-11. I thought it was really good. Yeah, there was a lot of 9-11 documentaries that came out after that, but it aged really well. And it did bring up a lot of incredibly um, important points and valid arguments that you know about the unanswered questions and what the Bush administration did and did not do after the attacks. So walk us through what this movie
0: is. Yeah, I mean Fahrenheit 9/11, you know, was obviously a really important cultural event when it happened. At the time, I was a little bit more already more radical than what where Michael Moore was with the movie. So I. You know, even at the time, I really liked the effect that it was having. Like it was really, you know, creating a lot of angry Bush supporters, to a lot of backlash against it. It was, it was, you know, creating a lot of discussion. I remember talking about it endlessly with people at the time. Some he, very heated discussions. What reading, you know, trying to back then. It's hard to remember. Everything was a unified front on the right. I mean, a hundred percent. You had like all these AM radio talk show hosts, like Sean Hannity and stuff putting out like debunking guides to Fahrenheit 9-11, like, like stuff like that. That's how, that's how strong of an effect the film had is that all these conservatives needed to debunk it or you know, try to fight against what narratives were in it. And after bin Laden came out in 2004 with that video right before the presidential election, uh, Bush actually said bin Laden sounds an awful lot like Michael Moore. So that's how much like the, like Fahrenheit 9-11 got in their heads. I mean, like they were, that's how much they hated him. They wanted to compare him to Bin Laden and stuff like that. <laughs> and there was also some interesting elements of Fahrenheit 9-11, which are very widely accepted today among most of the general public, like the Saudi Arabian role in 9-11, for example and that's a much more complex thing to unpack. Like, I definitely do not believe that Saudi Arabia did 9-11. I think it was a joint effort and, and there was definitely U.S. involvement and that's that's where I focus on it. But in Fahrenheit 9-11, um, he left some things on the cutting room floor, such as Condoleezza Rice's testimony at the 9-11 commission hearing, acting like she had no idea there were any of these warnings coming that ni- the 9-11 attacks were about to happen. And so there's definitely some... Winking and nodding to like the truth movement in Fahrenheit 9 11, but it is primarily a movie about how after 9 11, like all these civil liberties were taken away and we we're going into like a fascist state as a country. And that's a very important narrative in the sense that as much as obvious as that is to us and a lot of people like us at the time, it wasn't, it, I think it needed to be sort of forced upon the American public so they would understand, you know, how just how dire the situation is. And then Michael Moore promised to make a sequel to Fahrenheit n 11 He intended originally to release it while the Bush administration was still in power. He didn't, obviously. And then the Obama administration came into power. And that was an administration that Michael Moore seemed largely okay with. And he didn't really... He wasn't nearly as aggressive about Obama as he was on Bush or Bill Clinton. Um, If you remember in Bowling for Columbine, he said that Bill Clinton was the best Republican president we've ever had. So he was never pro-Clinton, ever. But for some reason, he sort of acquiesced to Obama. He celebrated it when he won. He said, now all the artists and musicians and activists can come out and not be afraid anymore. It's time to, you know, it's a new era we're living in. Um, he was, How could
1: someone that smart think that a president is going to be the saving grace for anything?
0: I mean, that's kind of embarrassing. It is very embarrassing. And, that's, that, and, and to be honest, that was the moment when I wrote him off. I thought, fuck you, Michael Moore. You fucking failed us. You, I mean, <laughs> as much as Fahrenheit 9-11, fa- again, I had we problems failed with you. it. I thought Our that government it built you. up, you know, it built us up to a certain point where it's like, now we need to go even further than this fucking movie. Like, we need to push this right. even further now. And instead, he went back. Like, he didn't backpedal on the movie's claims or anything, but he kind of withdrew his radicalism and aggressiveness at that point towards the the politicians, you know, he made Sicko, which is railing against the healthcare industry. Sicko actually, I think, is mostly a great movie. It's The message is really important in it. I think that it was sort of under, underappreciated, you know, one of his later films. Like, you show this to most conservative people. If they didn't know it was a Michael Moore film, they would end up agreeing with almost all the points in it about health, healthcare for everybody. Like, how could you not? I mean, when you really boiled down those elements... Yeah, most conservatives want they don't they don't want people to die from not having health care, like on a base level. So, you know, it's they're they're just taught to believe these things. Like I, I was just watching this T Y T reporter going to round to a MAGA rally, asking people about Medicare for all, and a lot of them are actually for it, and that's really fascinating. You know, when you actually yeah. end up, you isolate them, and you talk to them in person. I mean, they, they'll actually agree with many of these policies.
1: Yeah, without that political partisanship. Of course. And these heated debate, like, talking points that are injected in the narrative. Yeah, when you just ask people, like, do you want health care and do you want to end the wars? I mean, I think probably the vast majority
0: of this country would agree on these basic things. Totally. And so I, so I appreciated Sitco also. At that point, though, I kind of didn't have any faith in Michael Moore anymore to, like, fight the political establishment and the politicians. I mean, he was backing off of Obama completely. But yeah, so Fahrenheit 9-11 sequel was supposed to come out under the Bush administration. It didn't. I waited hoping maybe there'll be something about it during the Obama administration because Obama was increasing all these police state measures and post 9-11 policies and endless war from the Bush administration. Didn't happen, obviously. Pipe dream. It was a fantasy that I thought Michael Moore would have the balls to do that. So now two years into the Trump presidency, he releases his Apparent sequel, I say apparent, because it's not really a sequel called Fahrenheit Eleven Nine. In terms of, I'm going to divide this into sort of good and bad because there was it's a mixture. The film is very visceral on an emotional level. It really, it's a really real gut punch. There are some parts of the movie where like you tear up, like it's very effective. So I'll start with the good, the Flint water crisis stuff in the movie, excellent. It could have almost been its own documentary, and it would have actually been stronger if it was its own documentary because it was so fucking powerful. I mean, the, the on-the-ground interviews with people who were part of the Flint water testing, who were forced by the government to forge the paperwork saying there was no lead levels of like three, whatever number rating they use. So you got all these great on-the-ground interviews with people, town hall meetings about Flint, Original footage of Obama coming to Flint, you know, faking drinking that glass of water, interviewing people at the town hall, activists for the Flint water crisis, you know, basically being feeling crushed watching their their president come and fake doing this like PR stunt and also like just totally giving this free pass to Governor Snyder like, oh, it's not his fault, yada, yada. I mean, actually, what was great, Abby, that I thought you would have really appreciated is Michael Moore. Kept calling Governor Snyder like a criminal that should be in jail, like over and over uh, again in the I love movie. It. He That's tries great. he tries to do a citizens arrest, of course, of Governor Snyder. Um, he doesn't even get past his like PR guy at the you know governor's office or whatever. Um, he does another stunt in the movie where he takes a whole tanker truck full of Flint water and brings it to Governor Snyder's mansion, and then since he won't answer the door, he just sprays it all over his yard with a giant fire hose. So those, you know, those kind of things were kitschy. They were funny, but the real core of the movie that was really emotionally resonant was the on-the-ground interviews and what's happening in Flint. I mean, and the and the fact that it's basically an ethnic cleansing. I mean, he makes the argument in the movie that you know the amount of black people who are drinking lead-laced water that has causes irreversible damage. This is nothing other than like an actual ethnic cleansing taking place. I mean, it's very it's been proven that lead. Laced water actually causes irreversible brain damage. No, of course. Um, Yeah. So it's yeah, it's really sad. I mean, that to me was when they were interviewing um, people who were at the town hall who saw Obama drinking this water. It was it was it was really effective. It was very sad, Mm. and we we forget those things that Obama did because we were so focused on his foreign policy. But just the fact that he would show his face in Flint, it's it's just so fucked up on, on a so level that's just hard to that. even comprehend that he would do mm-hmm. that. But that, so that stuff I thought was very strong in the movie. And then also he, he punted on this, but I thought that it was good, even though he didn't take it very far as he was making the case that Trump, even if he gets impeached, might not leave the presidency and that. Trump is actually doing things that mirror Nazi Germany, dividing the country, scapegoating immigrants. I mean, all these things are true, you know, that we we know Trump is doing. And I felt like he did make an effective case that Trump is a dangerous fascist, more so than, you know, m- you know the mainstream media has done. They've done a terrible job of doing that because there are things they ignore. But in this movie, I mean, he actually shows clips of the Reichstag fire burning with like clips of Bush talking about the World Trade Center is on fire and he's imply and in it he implies that we're that Trump could stage his own terror attack and that would be it the country would be over so he has this hopeful message going throughout the movie about teacher strikes and unions and how much energy the parkland students the you know the activism around the school shootings and then it's just like the hope gets crushed cuz he's like did we even ever have a democracy and then he interviews a historian, and he asks them, "Are we one nine eleven away from full fascism?" And the guy responds with, "We're zero zero 9-11s away." Whoa! He's like, "We're already, we're already on our way." So the movie creates a sort of uplifting, hopeful feeling, and then it's just like he crushes it at the end on purpose. And I thought that was good, but in reality, it do- did seem like. He as put it in as an afterthought. Like it did seem like he wanted to make a more hopeful movie originally and that when Trump won, like a lot of this footage was filmed before Trump got in Mm -hmm. office. So a lot of like the footage he took for the movie was obviously made before he knew what how the election was gonna end up. Now that Trump's in, you know, I guess this is this is his take now, is that it's so it's so hopeless because look how close we are to this. I mean, he still encourages voting. Of course, he's a hundred. You know, his big guy, big thing is a hundred million people didn't vote. That's what really got Trump in. And it, yeah, it, it bothered it bothered me a little bit that he was like implying that, pairing nine eleven to the Reichstag fire, because that's kind of like open ended. It's like, what are you really saying there? I mean, I thought that overall it was good. It was it was very unfocused, and disjointed, but it had some very strong moments in it. Um but I can move on to the bad. I mean, there's definitely some criticisms which I wanted to talk about too. But mm-hmm. did you have any other like questions about it?
1: No, I just really want to see it now. Um, yeah, it's it seems really interesting. But yeah. yeah, I think
0: you would you would definitely appreciate aspects of it. I mean, in terms of the bad, I mean, there's definitely too much Cheater Strike stuff, too much Parkland student stuff in it. It felt like it belonged in a different, more hopeful movie. Not enough original or truly new footage about Trump to emphasize that Trump is a fascist. Almost all of that was taken from news archives. So mm-hmm. I was disappointed that Michael Moore didn't, have, didn't do a lot of legwork in terms of interviewing people about this. He interviewed some historians. That was sort of how he filled in those sections of the movie. But in terms of my biggest criticism of the movie, I mean, other than it being uh, unfocused and disjointed, the worst thing about it, I thought, is he really did a disservice? Is he, for being a sequel to Fahrenheit 911, if it's actually supposed to be, it did, literally didn't even make an attempt to show where the whole cast of characters from Fahrenheit 911 are now. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz. I mean, all these people are still out there, like rebranding themselves. I mean, especially Bush in fact it wasn't really even a sequel at all in that sense
1: yeah it seems like he missed a big part of the story which is how the resistance heroes are selling and now crushing dissent online
0: and the only thing that he did good at all was at the end he's like Robert Mueller is not gonna save us you know this is not gonna save us you really gotta stop like putting your hope in these things and just get out in the streets
1: did he show good did he show Robert Mueller selling the Iraq war and like no, no, he
0: didn't. I mean, he, he missed a lot of opportunities mm-hmm. to like show how the resistance are hypocrites and to show how they're joining forces with the same neocon. So that was my, bi- ultimately my biggest complaint. Mm-hmm. He d- was trying to have it both ways. He didn't want to anger too much the Hillary mm-hmm. diehards who think Russia got Trump elected, but he also wanted to s- knock some sense into them a, a little bit. He was doing a balancing act in the movie. For sure.
1: Yeah, which makes sense. He doesn't want to ostracize his base, but that's where a very heavy agenda the <laughs> next edition can come in and fill the gaps is where the hell, you know, the trajectory of all these uh, neocons and where they are today because that is an important story that no one's really put together yet in video form at all.
0: He took the easy way out, I think, but it's still a very scary and real message that he's trying to put out. Um, I
1: wonder why I haven't really seen it anywhere.
0: I've barely seen any press for it. I think it's because, I mean, if let's just say if it actually towed the resistance narrative and it was right. about Russia, it would be right. all over the place, dude. Oh, I mean, that on, movie I, Active, active on Measures, measures yep, is getting more publicity that. than this movie. Yep. And I think that that's probably why it's not. It's 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 not towing that narrative. You know, I don't know. Trump plan got boosted huge. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's weird, actually, that that little like stage show thing got more Mm -hmm. publicity than his new movie.
1: Well, I'm really happy you focused on Flint because it's kind of this talking point like, oh, Flint doesn't have clean water still. But like, what does that actually mean for the people who are living there? What does lead laden water do to you? And how was Obama a part of this scandal and how is it still continuing? And I really appreciate that he spent so much time going through that. That's a huge deal. And plus, there's like dozens of counties that have lead levels that are even worse than Flint. And so it's really important to keep zeroing in on, you know, these sacrifice zones of poor and low income minority communities that are dealing with these problems.
0: Yeah, and it's still it's still going on. Um, The fact that Trevor Noah would actually like repeat an Obama administration talking about the lead levels being safe is insane. Yeah, I mean there was and I just wanted to mention one more thing. He did throw in a tiny section about how Obama continued, you know, increased the war on terror, drone strikes, and prosecuted whistleblowers and he shows clips of Chelsea Manning. But it goes by very quickly in the movie. So that's again his easy way out of that. At least he covered it, but he didn't he didn't go nearly as far with it as he should have.
1: What war on whistleblowers? Remember when Larry King asked yeah, that? Yeah. He was like, what, what, Laura? I, I just watched
0: that interview again that you did with Larry King. And it was <laughs> insane. I love the someone, who was it where it was like, uh, they quoted you, the, what you said about him and at the end. you're like, well, that was, that Larry, was Larry King. King. <laughs> 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 it's like so pa- like beautifully passive aggressive. So good.
1: <laughs> because he ripped his mic off and like walked off before the interview was over, but we did, weren't able to show that part. So you weren't able like, to well, show it because Misha yeah. was a pussy. <laughs> um, did you want to say anything else about the movie?
0: Um, no, I mean, other than, I mean, we could segue into the next section by just saying that, you know, one of his primary points in the movie is that elections are still very important and that, you know, it's Mm -hmm. almost like one of the, one of the products of a fascist totalitarian system, uh, is to make people feel so disenfranchised that they don't even bother voting. Right. And that's one, that's to him, the most dangerous thing is that we're, just so disenfranchised and so disillusioned that we're not even trying to fight to keep this country from sliding into full fascism.
1: Another way that the U.S. is exceptional is its abysmally low voter turnout rates. I mean, we're talking about like 30% in, in midterms, and that's insane. Compared to even Latin American countries that just have such a more robust, active, participatory democracy. You know, and here we are, gallivanting around the world, uh, advocating regime change under the guise that we are the best democracy and we can spread that democracy. Meanwhile, crushing people. Look at voter disenfranchisement. Then there's the um, voter purges that Greg Palast has been covering repeatedly. Indiana, Georgia, um, hundreds of thousands of people's names have been deliberately removed from the ballot rolls. And they didn't even know about it. Greg Palace has been suing these states to try to reveal who has been purged. And they only had a couple weeks to re-register and find out if you were on the list. And who are the people who are purged? Low income, predominantly black, um, and minority communities. It's just unbelievable. And then you have the gerrymandering, obviously, the Electoral College. The fact that we have two state senators for California. Meanwhile, so does every other state with like populations that are like 0.1% of ours. You know, that's an exaggeration. But the point still stands that our system is couldn't be more fucked up, pretty much. And which brings me to local elections. So it's kind of like... Just absurd to even care about federal elections at this point. Um, You know, yeah, you can put all of your faith and hope and change into a savior like Obama or whoever is going to be the next Obama, Elizabeth Warren or whoever, or you can just focus on what you can do, especially if you live in a state like California, that's just absolutely massive. We're talking about one of the largest economies in the entire world. We could secede and be our own country and be completely fine. Um, And so I think that it's just really important to be as active as you can in local elections, especially referendums, initiatives like the legalization of marijuana. Look what happened there. Now we have legal marijuana. That's insane. Um, Meanwhile, there are multiple things on the ballot coming up that I just wanted to give a little shout out to. I just found out about Prop 10. This is an initiative um, all across the state that will give residents the chance to Advocate for rent control, this out-of-control, skyrocketing housing crisis um, where there's multiple empty houses for every homeless person. Homelessness has just exponentially increased, um, shot up 75%. Homelessness has shot up 75% in the last six years. And then you look at just rent costs in the Bay Area and now Orange County, San Diego, L.A., Specifically, in both of those areas, a uh, 40% increase in the last couple years. It's when insane. I lived in Oakland, I was paying, I think, um, you know $1,500 for a one-bedroom apartment. That would easily be 3000 today. And that it's was literally like it's six so years crazy. ago. Yeah, this is criminal. This is criminal. And it's all because a couple decades ago, um, there was a huge labor movement. There was huge unions. There were... Renter advocates that were Mm -hmm. preventing landlords and vulture capitalists to come in and change the entire system and change the laws in their favor. And so finally, the Democrats under the Clinton era, right out, you know, basically just capitulated to these giant real estate investors and lobbying firms and implemented something called Costa Hawkins. And Costa Hawkins made it so that any building. Built after 1978, so for example, rent control was installed in San Francisco and LA in 1978 and 1979, respectively. And so this bill made it so any building after that that was built could not have rent control, and it also eliminated any sort of vacancy um, law. Any time that someone leaves one of those rent control units. Landlords could just raise it as much as they wanted. They could raise it like 500%, 1,000%. So that's why they just try to purge all of these people out of their homes. Like, I watched many videos of low income minority communities and, you know, black people and, and Latino people trapped in homes with black mold growing all over. Like, the ceilings are caving in. They're living in just squalor and filth because they can't get anyone to come and fix their shit. Because the landlord just wants them out. So then they can raise their rent. And uh, you know there's just no penalty whatsoever for them to do this to people. And this is happening just uh, so widespread. It's not even funny. So this is finally our chance in, in like literally 20 years to try to get us back. Get us back on a road where we can get affordable housing. And we can actually try to get some sort of rent control before shit just flies off the handle. I don't know how much worse it can get. As someone who lives in LA and sees the tent cities every day, I once you explain to people what this is, like no one can say no. If you're a renter, no one can say no. No one wants to pay over fifty percent of their income on rent. Yeah. that's criminal.
0: Unfortunate to see how Oakland has basically just gone the way of San Francisco. I mean, all these Silicon Valley people, you know, who are, who are moving to San Francisco, um, who have helped drastically increase the rents, and you know, it's a combination yeah. of multiple factors. It's like the landlords definitely. Are primarily responsible, but at the same time, it's like the reason the market has increased so much is because all of these more rich, high-income people from Silicon Valley are living in San Francisco now, and they'll they'll pay anything. So yep. it's and then these you know the fact that these companies are all here in creating so many wealthy people um, who want to live in San Francisco. You know, and that also it's Google moved one of their sister locations in, into San Francisco many years ago. So that's a big factor in it. It used to be just a lot of these Silicon Valley people who are very wealthy, they would live down in Palo Alto. They would live on the mm-hmm, peninsula. Mm-hmm, Marin. Um, like in yeah. Burlingame and Cupertino. But now a lot of them live more in the East Bay and in San Francisco. And that appears to me to be one of the biggest reasons why rent has exploded. Oakland in particular, I mean, you, you like, like you said, I mean, you didn't live here that long ago, and the fact that the rents prices have already doubled, I mean, it's just, it's, it is criminal. I mean, it's shocking that there isn't anything being put into place to change this. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I think this is you know, it's a very important moment to get this, uh, this proposition passed. It's huge. And the people
1: who are doing the no on 10, similarly to the Prop 8 initiative, remember how that was like a no-brainer, but it yeah. was worded so confusingly that we actually voted no on gay marriage here. Yeah, that's how insane the measure was. And it was being um, just pummeled with tons of funds from like anti-gay organizations that just switched the language and really made people think that they were voting for gay marriage when they actually voted against it. So similarly, this proposition is extremely confusing. You read it on the ballot and you don't know what the fuck you're reading. And the people who are putting all the funds into the no campaign are, wow, corporate lawyers, lawyers. Um, and giant real estate firms, but they've couched it in that they're an affordable housing measure to say no on 10, and they're the ones with all the ads on Facebook, um, on Google, all over TV. Obviously, if this campaign has this much money, it's probably coming from a bad place, but people just get confused, and that's why they prey on people who don't know enough.
0: Well, I think that that's one of the interesting things about propositions is they often really confuse me, and I feel like I'm really politically plugged in, and like I try to study this shit, so... I mean, I, I I feel like sometimes they're purposefully confusing. I mean, Absolutely. the way that they're on the ballot, the way that they're discussed, the way that like local radio or TV or whatever is like, we're going to have both sides to debate proposition, whatever. And it's like, who the fuck are these people like debating both sides of it? Yeah, got to be neutral. It's really, it's just really interesting. Yeah, how hard it is to really get a grasp on all that stuff and to you know, to do advocacy for it and to, to actually like know what to vote for.
1: Well, luckily, this initiative is really close in the polls. It's like 49-51. Oh, wow. And so we really do have a chance. And that shows you how much people are waking up and yeah. how much grassroots pressure and canvassing is being done on a local level. Because think about it. I mean, this would be a no-brainer again for the corporations. It's already confusing as hell. They put out massive amounts of ads against it. And so the fact that this many people are voting for it shows a lot.
0: Exactly. Yeah, uh, I think it's a it's a good, very none. good sign. I mean, I think it's one thing that most people in the Bay Area can rally behind. I mean, it's I mean, this is I know this is for the whole state. But yeah, people out right. here. I mean. Oh yeah. You know, it's kind of like Medicare for all. It's like, yeah, maybe you're a conservative who doesn't think a landlord should be told what to do by the government, but at a certain point, like, you have to feel on a gut level that it's like this is wrong. People right. cannot <laughs> fucking pay rent anymore. I mean, the rent is so absurdly out of control it's gone beyond regular inflation like if oh it followed inflation or wages yeah wages it, have been it, stagnant it's just for so years. over the t- i mean it's just in a completely its own universe of like price increases so i think i even think regular conservatives would agree right you know if you if you were able to talk to them in private that maybe we should start doing this Well,
1: unfortunately, a lot of conservatives have been arguing with me saying, oh, this is actually going to increase housing costs. That's just a lie. It's like the net neutrality argument. They've tried to flip it
0: around because they're being fucking brainwashed. Well, and it's also insane.
1: It's really sad because it's like, no, 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 you're missing the point. This would actually prevent landlords from raising rent. Don't you understand the actual basic principle of this amendment? And that's what landlords are threatening their tenants with. They're like sending out leaflets saying, your rent will be raised if you vote yes on this just to try to. Be as fucked up as possible. It just yeah. reminds
0: me really quickly of how the conservatives are always trying to make these weird, that sound they, the arguments that sound like they're going to hurt us. Like I remember when the argument, you know, it was like ta- corporations should pay their fair share of taxes, which is like a completely logical, very straightforward <laughs> thing that almost everybody would agree with, right? But then you heard this talking point continually being pushed on right wing media, talk radio, and Fox News saying. If you tax corporations, then they're just going to pass on the cost to us. Well, what the fuck? What a weird thing. It's like, wait, so you don't want them to pay their fair share of taxes because then we're going to have to eat the price by them increasing the price of their goods. Like what a weird ass, dude, make them pay their taxes. That's the law. Yeah. yeah, Just like
1: raising $15 an hour minimum wage. It's like, Oh, so then you're just, you're going to have to pay more. It's like, we already subsidize restaurant workers because you can't pay living wages with tips. And now you expect us to just like pay more because you don't want to get less of a hundred million dollar bonus at the end of the year. Like what the hell is going on? It's just, it's just insanity. So, yeah, the public bank thing is another is another huge initiative. That's just in L.A., though. There's only one other public bank in the country. And I think it's in North Dakota. And it has taken all of the investment from the state and localized it. And so Charter Amendment B, for anyone who's living in L.A., there's a rally coming up October 20th. Um, so I'm going to be speaking there. Come out, rally. It's in downtown L.A., October 20th. But anyway, Charter Amendment B is going to initiate a public bank in Los Angeles because right now the city of LA pays nearly $200 million to just Wall Street vampire squids every year. Um, in interest, literally interest that's, and, and then of course they use that money to invest in private prisons, fossil fuel extraction and, and weapons manufacturing and basically endless war for defense contractors. So I don't know the polling behind this, but I think that this is a really good first step of trying to localize the economy and taking out wall street from the equation whatsoever, divesting from wall street entirely. And, um, It would just, you know, it would safeguard and grow assets through the city, keep it here, um, be accountable, be transparent and not spend any of the money on all of these horrible, um, corrupt industries and really be able to take all of that money that it just gives to Wall Street bankers back into infrastructure projects. Because right now, 50% of all infrastructure projects are just being given to literally Wall Street. I just couldn't believe this when I read this. Like, no wonder everything's so fucked up. Um, This is why we have like all the infrastructure just crumbling. Like you would think that the amount of wealth in LA, like the streets would be paved more and there wouldn't be so many goddamn potholes and like there would be actual public transportation that's more feasible for people, but no. So hopefully this is the first step that we can get uh, to try to do something about this.
0: Yeah. And it's just, just on that note, I mean, it's so interesting when you drive around Oakland and see which streets have been recently paved and fixed and which ones aren't. Mm You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's so blatant. I mean, like, there's areas in Oakland in the hills where the streets are perfectly fine, beautifully paved, like, just as recently as, like, a year ago, and then you go down to, like, East Oakland and, and West Oakland, and the streets look like they were torn up by a fucking bulldozer. Yeah. They're just, like, ru- it's just, like, a... Gra- like, some of it's just, like, the asphalt's, like, gravel. dangerous as hell. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's just so obvious what's going on. I mean, where these resources get routed. Just talking about, in terms of, like not even like these public private projects, you know, where, you know, like for example, even the Bay Bridge, a friend uh, uh, recently um, I was talking to, he's just very knowledgeable about like certain things like architecture and stuff. And he was, he was telling me this story about how the Bay Bridge tower um, the the main tower in the middle of this new section of the Bay Bridge uh, when they finished it, it was crooked. It was fucking crooked. And so they actually had to winch it using steel cables to try to make it not crooked. And that's, and so that's how it's permanently stayed. So think of, just think about how crazy that is for a second. It's nuts. A giant, massive amount of money went into this public-slash-private building project, and they literally winched the t- tower with steel cables because it was fin- finished crooked. Oh, great. Yeah,
1: cool. Well, what about the next earthquake that's supposed to Exactly. It's day? just
0: so crazy. And then the Salesforce Transit Center that was just built in San Francisco, this giant project that's been in the works for like seven years, where they literally shut down like the middle of downtown San Francisco mm-hmm. for years to build this thing. Um, it, it's actually, they recently had to ban people and close the uh, the area. They built a, like a public park on top of it, which is crazy looking. It's this giant project. Um, because the main beam has a, cr- the structural beam has a giant crack going through it. It's closed. This is a brand new, like grand opening. Remember that bridge that collapsed in, um, that they just opened, like wasn't even being used yet. The pedestrian bridge that crushed all those cars. Yeah. Like a year ago. This is like the new world we're living in. We talk about, you know, third world countries, like factories collapsing in India. Like, look at, they don't have any regulation or building codes. Look what's happening here.
1: But Robbie, Dave Rubin would say, Oh, people <laughs> just wanna do the right thing. You know why these things are happening? Because of government regulation, Robbie. That's why there's cracks oh, and yeah. the beams and they're they're skipping corners. Yeah too much government breathing down their necks
0: it's not because they're a lobbyist and like private industry people trying to like write shit off like super sloppily and be like no what the d-? yeah like the towers crooked like let's just go for it like
1: yeah we gotta get this done dude we gotta we gotta get to the next project next billion yeah. dollar high rise
0: it'll cost too much money to, to actually legitimately fix shit
1: <laughs> it'll cost too much money to remove the asbestos so let's blow them up I'm just kidding <laughs> And what I didn't realize, you can look at the Peace and Freedom Party Workers Voter Guide, because I didn't even know this until I looked at the voter guide, that bonds are terrible. So even though they mask all these propositions in bonds, it's like, oh, proposition one is for public bonds so we could build parks. And you're, and I always like voted yes. I'm like, oh, that sounds great. Um, well, apparently bonds are a fucking trick, dude. They're a trick to further enrich the elite. Um they are a gimmick, and they basically just raise the cost of government expenditures, often to well over twice the price that would be paid if they were just paid without having a bond. So it's basically just a way for Wall Street to extract more money, in like interest and in loans and shit. It's it's nuts. So all the bonds, we should all vote no all the time. I had no idea how that was just a total scam, and then because of this crazy jungle primary, um, a couple. Green Party were able to get up on the ballot um, to oppose corporate Democrats. But, you know, we already know that the jungle primary just eliminated the ability to really support third party candidates in the general election. But some did win in that runoff. And so we have a couple people, Rodolfo Cortez in L.A., Kenneth Mejia, Laura Wells. That's really the only avenue that we have to voice our opposition to the corporate Democrats who are, you know, preventing Medicare for all from passing, even though we voted for it. I'm inspired and I'm excited about the election despite all of the barriers that we have coming up. I'm
0: excited and I hope everyone gets involved and turns out on November sixth. Voting for a candidate on some level most of the time is always some form of compromise. Even if you're even if you're a radical leftist Green Party person and you're voting for the Green Party candidate, I mean there's a, there's a very high likelihood that you don't agree with everything that person is saying, even though they're better than the Democrat. So I guess my point is that I am I have mixed feelings about this, but like I don't judge anybody or shame anybody for getting really excited about a candidate, even if they're running in the Democratic Party. The part that when I start to sort of get worried and even to judge, judgmental is when people continue to really religiously... Push someone and and not accept criticism of them when they've proven themselves to have like abandoned their principles or they're getting like too mainstream too quickly. And then when they do that, they're starting to like say different things. Like, so so I feel like. Like Ocasio. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't want yeah. to say her name, but yes. No, I mean it's so, fine. I
1: think it's really an honest uh, assessment of yeah. where we're at. Like, so like, you can't none of these people should be idols?
0: Yeah. So I think there's there's a there's a way to have a dual mind about it. You can be like, yeah, Ocasio Cortez seems like she's you know a sellout and and whatever. Um, but you know, I'm still gonna vote for her. You know, like I mm-hmm, can respect mm-hmm, that position. Mm-hmm. If if mm-hmm. if you feel that that's the way your your own beliefs are going to get more prominence in this country and in this world, like I'm I'm fine with that. But I what I'm not fine with is people like refusing to hear that criticism.
1: Or like vote shaming you for yes. not wanting to Yeah, exactly.
0: Someone. I just think we need to be more accepting. Like especially like on the wider left of like this thing. Like right. this whole voter shaming thing has really toxified things. I mean that's another thing that I feel like Michael Moore deserves some some shit for is he promoted ralph nader he campaigned for him in 2000 Mm -hmm. and he regretted it because he got intimidated by the democratic party into thinking ralph nader cost gore the election so he literally gets on his knees around 2003 and begs ralph nader not to run or maybe it was i don't remember it was 2003 but he begs ralph nader not to run against bush again I, I get really mad when I see anybody vote shaming like that.
1: Yeah, because it's just going to get worse every election cycle. And yeah. they've always held that over our heads. Next time, next time, next time, we'll we'll try to, you know, give you the avenue to install radical politics or we'll finally move the Democrats left. No, it just keeps moving to the right every time because we keep letting them use that against us and hold it over our heads like a, just a fucking threat um, all the time. So, yeah, I'm, I haven't bought it for a long time, but I feel like... The thing that's different between now and the Obama time is that now people will shame you more and be like, now you have to, like, otherwise we're going to get Trump again. It's like, well, dude, who's it going to be next time Though, It's always going to be someone horrible. And they're always going to say that they're better than them. And that's the reason that you should vote for them. That's not a reason to galvanize people to vote for you, is saying you're better than this guy, even though you're just an abysmal failure. You know, yeah, as we're talking about elections and voting and stuff, Robbie, I always thought it was interesting that, you know, I get an Amber Alert or a mass text whenever there's like a car potentially kidnapping a child, yet it's so difficult to understand when these closed primaries are, when you need to re-register, if you're purged from the rolls, how to find out anything, or even the date of your election, Um, And I was thinking, why is it that we don't have that as an app? Like you can be sent information from the state or whatever informing you because, you know, I thought that a democracy was about having an informed populace. (laughs) Turns out Trump is installing this kind of emergency alert system. No, not to inform people of their democratic rights and civic participation, but for something that's just a lot weirder. And I don't even really
0: understand what the intent behind it is. Do you? I do actually. Here, let let me actually... I'm going to read from the official FEMA website. It's actually officially called an integrated public alert and warning system, IPAWS. It's a national test. Um, it was originally scheduled to take place like even earlier in the morning, which would have been creepier, I think, if it would have woken people up. It's, it's, so it's a FEMA, official FEMA test. It says that the test will assess the readiness to distribute an emergency message nationwide and determine whether improvements are needed. This will be the first nationwide, presidential-level WEA test and cannot be opted out. Cell towers will broadcast the WEA test for approximately 30 minutes. During this time, WEA-compatible cell phones that are switched on and within range of an active cell tower should be capable of receiving the text message. Cell phones should only receive the message once. And it says... The presidential alert will read, this is a test of the National Wireless Emergency Alert System. No action is needed. But it's interesting that it it has the word president, like, so when it came up on my phone, it seemed like it was labeled presidential alert.
1: Yeah, I thought so. I don't remember specifically, but I thought that it was clear.
0: Yeah, and I couldn't actually find it, like, in my text or anything. It didn't seem like it was, it wasn't, it didn't, like, send you a text message. It seemed like it just popped up an alert, like a like a notification mm-hmm. on the phone. so that's weird that's creepy that it's like accessing the notification thing mm-hmm. on the phone. This is a new specific type of a thing where it's like a test of something that I don't even know what they're they don't even describe what kind of situation it could be used for. I just keep thinking of the missile alert in Hawaii. I was just gonna mention that because in in Fahrenheit eleven nine. One of the ominous parts of the ending in the movie is like Michael Moore is like, ask the guy, are we only one nine eleven away from like a full fascist police state? And the guy says, we're 0 away. And then Michael Moore says, you know, he builds up all this stuff about how Trump is making jokes about how, what if he doesn't leave after his second term and he's like FDR and all this stuff. And then what happens one day if we wake up? And this is, keep in mind, the movie was actually made before this presidential alert system happened. So it's kind of perfect timing. It's creepy. Michael Moore says, what happens one day if we all wake up to an emergency alert? Wow. And it cuts to a collage of uh, Hawaiians all acting super terrified. Like, oh my God, what do we do? What do we do? Like tons of video clips I've never seen of like, God. People Snapchatting it, like trying to go into <gasps> shelters and stuff. It was extremely Holy intense. Shit. Yeah, it was fucking dark. Wow. Yeah.
1: I like that though. Me too. Because that because it
0: did happen there. I and know. It could
1: happen again. And that And, it and, will and that <laughs>
0: whole story about how that being an accident and all that stuff. No. I mean, it's just so weird. Even if it was an accident, it's like, why was that system even put in place in the first place? It's we know North Korea is not gonna try a new Hawaii. I mean, it's just such a weird Weird thing. You really have to question what's going on.
1: You see that story about Israeli spywares is found on phones in 45 countries targeting journalists, human rights activists. It's just like... Oh, fantastic. It's crazy. The documentary that Al Jazeera was going to put out, that second part of it, I talked about the one in Britain. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And there was the American
0: um, So this was banned, right? Too. Like they didn't actually end up putting it out?
1: No, it's banned, yeah. But people have been getting snippets of it and also like just finding out what was in it. Basically, this article was specifically about how they use Facebook to create dozens of front groups and pages that are posed specifically as progressive, as feminist, you know, posting memes of Ida B. Wells, of Maya Angelou saying that these are revolutionary thinkers, but then sprinkling in pro-Israel content. So one of them is called Cup of Jane. It has 500,000 followers and it posts basically left content. And then every once in a while, it'll post the pro-Israel stuff. And uh, this guy admitted on camera that there's a staff of 13 people like I manage, you know, a couple Facebook pages as well as do a million other things like for a full-time job. And these people's job is literally like 13 full-time employees managing all of these different pages that are masked as progressive organizations or initiatives that are just all pro-Israel advocacy funded directly by the state. Um, he said that there is a major network of Facebook communities focused on history, the environment, world affairs, and feminism that appear to have no connection to pro-Israel advocacy, but are used by the Israel Project to spread pro-Israel messaging. So this is from the Electronic Intifada, and Ali Abu Nima, one of the authors of the article, states that the Israel brand is so toxic that you can't really sell it directly anymore, especially to these communities, as the you know the progressive communities, especially because people are waking up so much to the war crimes and apartheid. Um, so he says you have to inject it within other hip stuff. And then from time to time, you're going to slip something about Israel into just to confuse people.
0: Yeah. And it's this funny too, because the type of memes and things you're describing sound actually more effective than all this weird Absolutely. shit that we're accusing Russia of doing, like running like Absolutely. an ad with like Hitler um, or no, like <laughs> Satan uh, doing like a um, arm wrestling with God and like weird mm-hmm. shit like that. Like it's just like, I mean, it's just so funny that this is completely buried, and it's mm-hmm. all about Russia, 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 mm-hmm. meddling in our political affairs, and um, yet here's an Israeli project that's actually seems really effective, really and smart. This is just really Facebook.
1: In. I mean, God. And th- can you imagine? Thirteen people are working full time on this. How many dozens, if not hundreds, of people are working to inf- all of these influence operations across all of social media and creating all of these fake groups, like we saw in the the UK version of the documentary, it was stunning. They had injected themselves into like, um, this labor conference with this fake front group called the friends of Israel mm-hmm. or like labor friends of Israel or whatever. And it was just totally a, a fake operation that was just trying to pretend like there's a progressive arm of Israel that wants a
0: two state solution. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, and it also just brings to mind like who, <clears throat> who wants You know who's who. Who is it useful for to make everybody think that like all artificial social media campaigns are done by Russia? It's Mm -hmm. useful for the people who need those artificial social media campaigns the most, right? Like corporations, like countries, Mm -hmm. like Israel that are running out of time because they fucking are. The world is watching them like murdering civilians on a regular basis. So it makes perfect sense like why so much of like the elites in our society are allowing this narrative to continue and perpetuating it because it benefits all of them on some level. It makes people not look at them. It makes people just look at this cartoonish comedy of errors, internet research agency thing doing like... These memes, like I was telling you about, like Mm -hmm. Satan Hitler. I mean, Satan and God (laughs) arm wrestling. Like that's gonna like sway the election. Just like the weirdest shit you've ever seen that doesn't even make sense, and people buy it. Every time
1: you want to look under one of the layers of the so-called Russia collusion narrative, you find Israel around every corner, and so yeah, it makes perfect sense that they would be like the ultimate deflectors um, because they don't want you to look at them. Mm-hmm. And if it weren't for these undercover people like doing a six-month investigation with hidden cameras, none of this would be known. I mean, yeah, you can you can suspect that it's being done, but like this is just unreal. And it's all our money. That's what's so amazing. Not only, you know, we're giving Israel $10 million a day to commit all these atrocities, but they're just like spending it right back on these social media um, infiltration campaigns.
0: And as I was, I think I mentioned this on a podcast like maybe even a year ago, but Dan Senor. It's interesting uh, that he was part of helping, quote-unquote, rebuild Iraq by being Paul Bremer's spokesperson during the occupation and, and making up fake lies about why they had to murder civilians in mosques. But he actually was part of this Israel's tech boom. Israel has their own sort of so-called Silicon Valley, um, and they're very involved in Silicon Valley in California. Like a lot mm-hmm. of the subcontractors these companies use... A lot of the apps that you can buy on app stores are made in Israel. And um, Foreign Policy Initiative, PNAC 2.0 uh, founder, Dan Senor was actually very... like um, He was involved in that tech boom and actually wrote a whole book about it. Yeah, And who knows like wh- to what level the Mossad is fucking around in the United States still and, and trying to fuck with our intelligence agencies and vice versa. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we'd say Israel is an ally... But we already know there's plenty of evidence of all these different examples of them spying on us. There's just a weird history that's like very under the radar, and I want to know if you know what's still going on there.
1: Yeah, speaking of spying, uh, I just saw on Anya's new show. I wanted to give a shout out to Anya Parample, my best friend, has a new show called In Question on RT. It airs daily. It's really great. She was the producer on Breaking the Set, and she's still keeping that spirit alive by having really good guests and. Um, just looking at issues from a Marxist lens. But anyway, she did a story about the FISA courts. It came out, I don't know why we didn't know about this during the Obama administration, but for some reason it was just revealed that the FISA courts are used to spy domestically on quote-unquote foreign agents. And analysts and people who you know unders- can read through the lines have said RT employees are the number one target there. <laughs> and if you <laughs> worked at RT or you do work at RT, you can really assume that you are being wiretapped um, through the FISA court and also
0: anyone that you talk to. So if that wasn't clear before, it is now. That's a really fucked up thing because the FISA court, you know, is a shadowy court, obviously, but in, in, on some level behind the scenes, it legitimizes and makes and in, in quote-unquote sort of legalizes these, these uh, surveillance actions, so... It really makes me wonder now how many, like, if, if that's true, I mean, we can assume that people in RT are being wiretapped or monitored on a, on a level treating them like foreign agents. But now that, the, I, I mean, I didn't even think about it like that before. That's crazy uh, to imagine, like, how many people are in the loop of that, if that's right. happening, which we can assume that it, it is. So, right, wow. Um, mm-hmm. Very creepy. I mean... And there's some merit to, you know, the 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 you know the pro-Trump base has ran with this narrative, but there's some merit to it, which is that the FISA court was abused by tapping people in the Trump campaign, you know, thinking that they were meeting with Russian agents. Right. And it's strange because the meeting with the Russian agents that they had does seem kind of odd. Like, the woman who they were trying to, trying to meet with... Was, this is the weirdest part about it. She was trying to, this is apparently what the news says, and I don't know if the Mueller investigation has said this, but that she was actually trying to lobby future President Trump to remove the Magnitsky Act. And I, I just find that very odd that that's what the meeting was about. It just, it just, you know, obviously harkens back to Bill Browder and what we know about how all this started in the first place. So I don't know. Wow. I'm not saying that it was a setup. I, I could see the argument that it was a setup. Like I could, I, I, part of me is like, I, that argument does make sense, but I'm not saying it is. Mm-hmm. It's weird.
1: Mm-hmm. That is really interesting that that's what she was meeting with them about. Yeah. One of the things that we're going to do with the funding for Empire Files is start an Empire update. Um, Cause I just think it's going to be a little bit easier for people to digest and, uh, you know, what's going on with the empire around the world and without having these kind of in-depth documentaries about it. So we also want to start doing that on this show. And, uh, you know, we, the Afghanistan war is largely forgotten.
0: Yeah, and I think Afghanistan especially is one that is being criminally neglected by almost everybody with the exception of a few anti-imperialists and, and people who've been dedicated to that. It's the longest war in American history. That's already well known. Um, there are still troops over there, tens of thousands of troops. I'm not and exactly. And Trump, sh-
1: Trump did a big surge when he got in office.
0: Yeah, Trump did a an Afghanistan surge. There's actually seven that have died so far this year in 2018. The Washington Post reports quote U.S. Army Specialist James A. Slape stepped out of his vehicle in Afghanistan on Thursday, ready to help others. Um, sorry, I'm re- <laughs> re- I'm re- I'm reading the Washington Post article. The soldier trained in bomb removal wanted to clear a path to a vehicle that just hit a roadside bomb in Helmand Province. Then a second explosion hit. Slape Twenty Three became the seventh U.S. service member killed in combat in Afghanistan this year. The Pentagon released his name on Friday night.
1: I like how they call it combat. <laughs> it's like
0: yeah, I like um, what combat. And and just on another note, I mean, yeah, like the idea that it's even combat. I mean, Jake Tapper posted this really weird Twitter thread where I'm just going to read a quote from it because it's just it's just odd. And uh, a Twitter user named Gumby for Christ actually,
1: I love I love them.
0: I oh yeah, their the tweets are are excellent. They're So great. So. He posted this. He just talked about how Jake Tapper is sort of blurring the line between like propaganda, reality, and media by visiting this set of an Afghanistan war film and then talking about how realistic and eerie it is and how some of the people in the movie are actually people who served in Afghanistan and were part of this operation that the movie's about. So here's Jake Tapper's actual tweet says, I visited the set of The Outpost film. The troops who served at the real COP in Afghanistan who are working on the film say it's eerie how close it is to the original. And the tweet keeps going. Why is he
1: there? Obviously
0: for like some CNN report, which is odd that CNN would be like. Cool. Yeah. Giving an extra boost to this movie. And then Jake Tapper tweets again. He's like, here's. Daniel Rod 83, who served at COP Keatling during the horrific 2009 attack and who plays himself in the film, showing me around the film's version of the mortar pit. And it just keeps going on and on and on.
1: but here's Maga Chud 74, who played himself in the
0: movie. <laughs> Maga Chud. The
1: Sounds like a screen name. He's just
0: like, You're here's at, Daniel Maga, Clemmer. For some reason I, I he said Maga Chode. Um, So yeah, it's just... It, it is strange how like all these movies that talk about quote unquote combat, you know, they just have to like exaggerate these combat situations because it's really not combat, like you're saying. It's just like these soldiers are like scattered across the country in these little outposts in places that aren't controlled by the Taliban, which is like the minority of the entire country.
1: Yeah, Mike on Eyes left. was talking about it. He he laid a population density map over the actual Taliban controlled areas and it was like all of the populated areas are controlled by the oh, Taliban. Oh, totally.
0: So that's why it's exactly. That's why it's so funny when you watch these movies. You know, to make it more realistic, they're always in these areas and the soldiers are always in these areas where there's like no one around. Where there's like nothing but like a few farmers and stuff like hanging out. So this is one of the things that's been in the news recently is that Trump actually approved a $1 trillion mining deal um, that was stalled for a few years. It got stalled during uh, the Obama administration, and I'm not exactly sure why it got stalled. But Reuters reported on October 7th, Afghan government officials have signed contracts for two major mining projects in northern Afghanistan pushing ahead with plans to develop the country's mineral reserves, but drawing criticism over the involvement of a former minister in the project. The deals were signed in Washington on Friday with mining and investment group Centaur and its operating company, Afghan Gold and Mineros, Minerals Company, to develop two sites with potentially major gold and copper deposits. So that's what sort took of what so we, long? You know, we, we remembered hearing about years ago that... Yeah, what took him so long? I don't know. I mean... Maybe, you know, maybe this was an area of the country that wasn't secure enough yet, um, but maybe what took them so long is what the obvious is, is that uh, the Taliban holds more territory than any other time since the 2001 invasion, since right before the 2001 invasion. Now, in 2018, that's been, right. that's been actually officially acknowledged by military sources from the U.S. government. Um, so, and
1: and what's so sad is like, even though, yeah, there's still U S soldiers dying, which is really tragic. The amount of actual suicide bombings that are happening, I mean, on the anniversary itself, like over 50 people were killed and you have the, the armed forces that were supposedly and allegedly training to take over after we finally leave, whenever the hell that's going to be, um, 500 were killed in a single month i mean there's like literally 30 to 40 dying
0: every day yeah the afghan Uh, government says that that is the most soldiers that have been killed since the war begun like that that, like the amount of death that happened in that single month why are we still there i mean even yeah even if you're conservative i mean the argument would be like let's get out of there and let them fend for themselves you know that's like the heartless argument it is odd that this just keeps going on in the background and we're spending so much money just from a conservative heartless perspective like it's just forgotten about it's a forgotten endless war yeah i mean eric prince is still involved mm-hmm. as well he's his sister is in the trump administration he's trying to shop around the privatization of the us war there he wants to turn it into a permanent occupation of like privatized blackwater style military people
1: Yeah, right now he has a new company. This is like the fourth iteration of his venture. That's now a Hong Kong-based company called Frontier Services Group. So just know that. And he's constantly in Afghanistan trying to sell the privatization of the war there. Um, And he presents himself as a Trump advisor as he's going around all these meetings.
0: Creepy. Mm Mm-hmm. He's just particularly creepy because he fits this weird mold of like this, you know, he claims he's like a libertarian. He's one of these like Peter Thiel-esque, you Mm -hmm. know, pro-Trump elites, you know. And the fact that he was part of like the deep state, I mean, they, they, they really helped codify that illegal war in Iraq. I mean, it really gave the Bush administration a certain amount of buffer if private contractors could do a lot of the legwork. Then even those deaths, like Mike was saying on the podcast, those don't even get tallied in the the death count, like for the American side. They're not considered right. soldiers. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly.
0: So he was a really integral part of getting that Iraq war t- to get afloat and then also just to maintain itself.
1: One funny th- story that I came across from the Washington Post um, about, you know, how we've obviously fomented and funded the rise of Osama bin Laden as well as the Taliban to fight you know, what was first the Mujahideen that later turned into the Taliban to fight Russia back in the 80s, well, amazingly, we spent millions of dollars, the U.S. government spent millions of dollars to produce and disseminate anti-Soviet textbooks for Afghan schoolchildren. The books encouraged a jihadist outlook, which was useful propaganda at the time for a Washington driven by the imperatives of the Cold War. Printed both in Pashto and Dari, Afghanistan's two major languages, books such as, quote, The Alphabet Alphabet for Jihad Literacy were produced under the auspices of the U.S. Agency for International Development by the University of Nebraska and smuggled into Afghanistan through networks built by the CIA and ISI, the Pakistani military intelligence. It's just amazing that even back in the 80s, they were using civil society organizations to do all this kind of covert CIA stuff. The blowback of all of these efforts to fund uh, these kind of radical extremists in areas like Afghanistan to fight "quote unquote" communism.
0: Yeah, and it's almost like the blowback itself is beneficial to what we're, what we're trying to do. I mean, if you yeah, exactly. If you don't put any altruistic <laughs> motives at all on this U- U.S. foreign policy military industrial complex, and why wouldn't like why do why do they care about they like the military industrial complex doesn't give a shit about the blowback. You know, it's, it sounds like, oh, it's some kind of conspiracy to say they want there to be endless war and chaos to sell weapons. It's like, that's not a conspiracy. Like, that's what fucking Eisenhower said in his final yeah. speech at the White House. It's the same thing with how they will rather push
1: fascist ideology like this than allow communist ideology. That's That was the whole premise of the Cold War. They actually emboldened and funded fascistic elements to fight left Co- communists yeah leftist communists and so yeah i mean do you think that they just didn't understand what they were doing at the time like how was that altruistic did you know that we're at war with tunisia
0: i did not i mean i yeah, last time i heard about tunisia was uh being the spark for the arab spring
1: well strap up baby nice We're fucking there, dude. We are there making sure that, I guess, there's no other iteration of the Arab Spring to actually, uh, you know, for proper revolution there. So the U.S. is expanding operations and military presence, obviously, across Africa. We know that there's at least 6,000 boots on the ground. That's probably a gross underestimate. And that doesn't include the drone wars, of course, in Niger and Somalia that claim to be targeting al-Qaeda, Daesh, and Boko Haram. So a special report came out And apparently the U.S. has maintained a military presence in Tunisia since 2014 Um, that special ops were deployed there. And I have no idea what the premise is at all, but AFRICOM is there, the Air Force is there, and they're carrying out intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance missions. And we're at war with Tunisia, so that's just one other country that the U.S. is destroying on a daily basis.
0: Fascinating. But
1: one, one exciting thing to come out of the whole Empire report is in Okinawa, it makes up 64% of all U.S. troop presence in Japan. And we're talking about a relatively small landmass. And that's why it's been so detrimental to every aspect of Okinawa life, uh, whether it be the rape and you know the impunity for U.S. soldiers that are tried and, and attempted to be held accountable in these bases or the destruction of the environment. And there's prestigious coral reefs there that are destroyed. There's landfills there by the U.S. troops. It's just, it goes on and on and on and um, Okinawa houses 54,000 American troops. That's nuts.
0: And it also uh, just was also a reading and it has spread among 32 bases and 48 different training sites.
1: This has been a controversy for a long time. Decades now, Japanese people have been mobilizing to try to remove U.S. troops from Okinawa. This has been a huge struggle and, uh, the good news is Denny Tamaki, who just won um, the governor election in Okinawa, and his whole campaign was criticizing the U.S. military presence and saying that they want to boot them. And so he says Hinoko, which was where they were going to relocate the U.S. troops, he was like, will not be allowed. And he was he totally defeated this ruling party back candidate that was pushing the status quo and just was another U.S. pawn. And he said, um, we are all family on earth, he said, of dealing with the U.S. He said, how can we coexist and understanding and peace should be our starting point? So this is a really big thing. It might seem small, but it's not at all. This shows you the movements that are taking place wherever these bases are present. It's incredible that Okinawans have organized and put this guy in. And hopefully we really see some movement to push the U.S. military out and especially with this semi-detente and the peace negotiations moving forward with um, President Moon and Kim Jong-un, is that you know we really could see that rationale just completely dissolved pretty rapidly. So there's no justification at all to have this gigantic presence of U.S. troops in this area anymore.
0: Crazy. I mean, I, I want to go to Okinawa. I mean, mm-hmm. I've, I've always wanted to go there, but yeah, it, it'll be depressing to see... You know, just how much U.S. military presence there is there. I know. It's disgusting.
1: But that's amazing. It shows you that, I mean, isn't that a really cool sign, though, that despite the stranglehold that the U.S. has on, like, the local economy, um, that the governor just won.
0: Yeah, no, that's great. On a
1: campaign to kick them out, so.
0: That is really good.
1: So, yeah, let's wrap it up with that, because that's that's really good news, and hopefully we'll see more of that going on around the world. Um, and uh, we really appreciate your support. We hope that you listen to the last podcast of all the other updates from this month and you listen to the next podcast that we're going to upload, which is a true crime story um, narrative about the anthrax attacks unfolding as it happened with clips and narration and just really something that you've never heard before and that's never really been done before about this. So yeah, definitely stay tuned for that. that.
0: And, yeah, um, please uh, consider supporting us at Patreon um, at patreon.com slash mediarootsradio. You can donate as little as $1 per episode. Um, And we have different tiers available with some bonuses and perks um, for higher donations. So, yeah, thank you so much for donating already Mm -hmm. if you're a listener
1: please donate. We're going to release the first little exclusive uh, podcast for patrons this month. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be a little entertainment update, but thank you so much for donating. We spent a lot of time preparing for these podcasts and we just put a lot of our heart and soul into it to make it as good as it possibly can be. And we really appreciate your support and investment in this project. So thank you so much for listening to media roots radio and for all your feedback guys.
0: Thank you everybody.
1: Oh, one more comment. If you live in the D.C. area, please go out October 20th and the 21st to the March on the Pentagon, organized by Cindy Sheehan and many other peace activists. So please show up and support that initiative. And also, it's a great opportunity to network with like minds.
0: Yeah, maybe I'll join you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Peace out.
0: All right. Good night.